Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and today I'm joined by Mario Vasilescu, CEO and co-founder of Readocracy. Mario's team is on a mission to save the internet and our minds by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created Readocracy, a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and even gives you insights like a Fitbit for your mind. All of this helps you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks and been recognized at South by Southwest. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy. For access to Readocracy, just head over to readocracy.com and mention Neo Academia. For special access to a collection curated by me and Mario, make sure you're subscribed to the Neo Academia newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. There you'll find this episode with a special collection, show notes, and even bonus content. Now let's explore. We've been talking for a couple years. Yeah, time flies. It's horrifying. Yeah, it is horrifying. I wrote a grant for what I was calling the multiverse. I thought of it as a learning experience platform. And then I'm on Twitter. I think you tweeted under Max Tegmark because he said, oh, look at this new tool. It'll show you the leanings, the political leanings of whoever's handle you type in. And I think you were like, oh, you should check out my tool then. And I was like, okay, I will. Yeah. I'm trying to jump into the comments in the least promotional way possible. But that's generally what I try to do. When I see a thread that's like really strongly related, I'm like, ah, I don't want to be that guy who's self-promoting. So I'm going to put something that seems generally useful and not totally in your face. And if anybody replies, I will engage with that person. So I, that's probably what I did. And I guess it worked with getting like-minded person to respond. It did work. You were in the right place for sure. At the right time, we have to be cognizant of the attention economy. I can be against what the attention economy stands for now, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't set up a TikTok account, learn it inside out, and then start putting out educational content and revealing the horrors of TikTok from the inside. I'm so, going to tell you, yeah. you need a TikTok. I was going to, yeah. I was thinking that this morning I posted a TikTok and I was like, Mario needs a TikTok. You used Twitter correctly that day. I responded and I emailed you and I was like, Hey, can I try your product? And you were so gracious and said, yeah, okay. And yeah. then we, I started using it. I've been using it like every day ever since. And yeah, thank you. You're a power user. <laughs> okay. That's funny. <laughs> well, yeah. and now here You're we are, that's, but We've been on a journey and I've heard a lot about Redocracy over the years and gotten to see how you've adapted and shifted and changed a little bit. Why don't you explain what Redocracy does and the mission that you guys are trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. What Redocracy is, and then I can explain the why, which is very important as you obviously understand really well. We have made a platform that is designed to make how you inform yourself count because right now you can spend hours and hours online or offline as well, books, what have you, and you don't get anything for it. You have no awareness. So we built this platform that in a nutshell has two primary functions. First of all, using the tracking of all this content you consume, we generate insights that we like to say are like a Fitbit for your mind that will help you understand how you're political bias is shifting, how it might be affecting your mood, different patterns in your knowledge, how you give your focus, all these types of things that you'd never have any idea about because it'd be a huge pain to aggregate the data, even if you could get it, which most of the cases you couldn't. And then publicly, we want you to use the best of it to then present to the world how committed and credible you are on the subject you care about. And so that's where Redoctors generates a knowledge profile for our users. And it's not only designed to look great, like a personal page for your life's learning, basically the best of it, automatically organized, verified, quantified, but then giving you assets, which we've been building out so that you can take that profile and embeds at all the touch points of your life where you'd want to convey to others how intelligent, committed, and informed you are, whether that's LinkedIn, newsletters, presentations, what have you. So that's in a nutshell, you can use it individually as an organization, as a school. These are whole other aspects we're getting into as a media company. So you can imagine a situation where a publisher doesn't just expect people to see the intrinsic value in their content, but they can start rewarding their users as credentials for reading on a certain subject. They can gate their comments discussions by saying, oh, you want to be part of our super high quality and civilized discussion. You have to have read these five things first. So this is, it's an ecosystem really we're building and the, and the mission behind it, there's two sides to it. One is the social impact side. I mentioned having awareness around how you invest your time and the metrics around that. We're really attached to that idea and trying to popularize the idea of infobesity, 
we think there's a very tight parallel between, <laughs> yeah, it's, so we're trying to make the term something that everybody can start using. You laugh at it first and then you cry. Yeah. It's just like both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. So it's, it's the idea that the, what we noticed the obesity epidemic, you can really tightly draw the parallels to, to how we feed our minds. So with our bodies, we didn't have, forget nutrition labels. We didn't have like obligations on ingredient accuracy right. and transparency or even ingredient labels. Then you have the nutrition labels. You didn't have education in school. You didn't have laws around what people could advertise. You like, you're just like a wild west. So obviously people like well-intentioned people fed their children garbage. They were completely mindless about what they consumed their bodies because they had no like awareness, metrics, feedback, anything. And we got to where we got. Then we started having these transparency requirements, education in school, laws around what you could promote to people. And so we see this direct parallel to not how we feed our bodies, but how we feed our minds, the diet of our minds. So can we do the same things? Can we equip people at scale to have that context and awareness and to develop those inherent reactions to when you see the informational equivalent of a burger versus a salad to then change how we think as a society? So we feel that if we don't do that and we continue to be completely mindless, consequence-free reward, lacking rewards around how we feed our minds, we're screwed as a society. Yeah. The other side of the why is, it, for lack of a better word, the giant economic opportunity. And that's not just for us, but how we can impact other people's economic mobility. People always come to us, and, and I think this is likely probably with any content-related business online, like, oh, why don't you just use this for advertising or feeding into programmatic advertising? What great data? And my response to that always is, okay, here's a simple number. Digital advertising is worth about $350 billion globally, which is obviously nothing to sneeze at. But besides the fact that so much of it is shady and what is the real number, but let's assume it's all legit. People spend over a trillion dollars every year on how they present their knowledge to the world and making sure it's certified. Like how can I make people trust that I know about something? So they'll spend over a trillion on degrees, certificates, courses, memberships, every year to say nothing of the money spent in learning and the development in corporations to say nothing of the fact that when you look at the value of the fortune 500 it's either 84 or 86 percent of the value is from their intellectual property and their proprietary knowledge and so all that together it seems insane that people are spending all this money then they're going online because obviously degrees are not enough anymore in today's world so they go online and spend so much time and emotion and energy desperately trying to posture around subjects on LinkedIn, on Twitter, making newsletters. And at the same time, these people are spending hours every day, usually on content that is relevant to their profession, relevant to their passions, and have no way of easily cataloging it, presenting it, and quantifying and proving it. So there's like this ridiculous disconnect there. And so that's what drives us. And they are connected, these two wires of like social impact in our diet and then how you present it. Because if... This touches on effective altruism. I know I've gone like a major rant here, but I promise I'm almost done. <laughs> is the fact that you can tell people all sorts of things about why they should behave better, right? Think of your children. Don't you care about democracy? What about your grandchildren? All this kind of stuff. Sure. But ultimately people are very busy. They're very stressed. They have bills to pay. And when you get home at the end of the day, if you don't have something that is immediately motivating you for the here and now, you're going to have to have a tough time making like a sea change in society. And so... The idea of these two eyes being connected is sure we can inform people and tell people like you should be more aware of your media diet, you should be more mindful, but we can have a real impact once we map that onto the status value and ego value that people have in society, which is what human society ultimately runs on. And then we can really motivate people in a way that drives behavior change. So that's my long-winded yeah. answer. I agree with you on both of your whys. They go hand in hand because... I think the first why causes the second. Mm -hmm. You don't have the energy or the economic incentive to learn or to have a good information diet. And then that leads to whatever we're in right now. This mm -hmm. So there's a ton of information out there and nobody's really taking the bull by the horns and saying, here's what we should do with it. Here's how we can help each other with it. And that's why I love what you're doing. There's n nothing like what you do out there that I have seen. You're never supposed to say, oh, we don't have a competition. Like, of course we have overlapping things. There's reader apps out there. There's all sorts of things, but it's true. Like we have yet to find somebody who is doing what we're doing. Except me. I was trying. I tried. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great minds, right? A small undertaking. I, just a small, yeah, just tiny. Just a small thing to try and yeah. not only categorize and label the food, but mm. to also then 
create a, let's say a food pyramid in a sense. I think you actually bring up a good point. When you think of why we're healthy with our food diets, of course, we've been educated in these ways, but with food, it's interesting because you get a, you could see it. Like your yeah. skin gets greasy, like you add on the pounds, whatever it may be. You don't feel as good with your inflammation diet. The part of not feeling as good is there. But in terms of the outward appearance, it's not as specific. Mm -hmm. So I think beyond the food pyramid, I think the aspect of what we're doing, which is important in that context, is also like visualizing it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, where the status or your profile or the, all these things there is that parallel it's interesting to to your, like you just made me think when you're mentioning the food pyramid because it's like it's not just structured like that but then how do we make it translate in this way where it becomes like tangible and, yeah. and i love what you said about the signaling or posturing mm -hmm. for what's happening out there i would love to have brian kaplan on the podcast because he's the one who really got me thinking i was already thinking education was bunk after getting mm -hmm. a phd and all that stuff and going through the academic system and being like, no, this is actual bullshit. But mm -hmm. I would love to have him on because he really talks about the system of box checkers we're creating. And you're right. There's so much information out there and people are using it for one of two things to either get better in their corporate ladder and climate or to get the hell out of it. You bring up a great point that we can bemoan the traditional education system and say you're producing people who are designed for the factory line for industrial rote monotonous memorization and production and just doing things as they're told in a certain way not enough critical thinking but then when you get to the academic level you could argue it's even more damaging to society in terms of this thing that is supposed to be at the leading edge it ha has all these resources invested and instead of aligning that in a sharp point that applies as the most pressure in the most constructive way you have this weird frothy self-serving sick like self-indulgent i don't know like all the ways you could describe it that is i don't think maybe in some almost accidental way it reaches a point it does push for things forward you can't say it doesn't but it certainly doesn't seem efficient yeah obviously i completely agree so <laughs> Another great thinker that I admire is Peter Turchin, and he mm. talks about the overproduction of elites and the consequences for society, that we're producing all these people like me who get their PhD and are like so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and want to do cool things and use their knowledge, and then they're like, no, you do this. Mm. The equivalent of me going into my biotech career and they're like okay you talk about this you only talk about it this way only to these people don't go outside the, don't color outside the lines i'm like but y'all taught me you gave mm. me a phd and taught me to color outside the lines now you want me to stay in them and mm. also there's not room for me in academia and so peter turchin talks about the consequences of producing all these thinkers with nowhere for them to go mm. and then so they cause trouble mm. <laughs> so we've got all these they're not, they're like bourgeois now, but even the prof the professorial class is the bourgeoisie and yeah. they are not making change. There's so much administrative and political burden within academia. So what do you think a readocracy could eventually accomplish as a supplement to mm. our educational, our higher educational system? It, it's interesting because already what's happened in academia, which I think is a result of the commercial pressures, you went from a situation where it seemed like experts and research were kept very close to the chest and private, and it was all very secretive. And then now suddenly, I think this has already been the case for over five years now, schools are really prioritizing how they promote their researchers and their experts, like this whole marketing angle. And it's the polar opposite of how it used to be. It's actually quite shocking how extremely opposite it is. And so with the readocracy, I would hope that there would be a more explicit connection to the applied social value of learning. I don't want to reduce learning to something that is transactional and you do learning because you need to achieve whatever, like you should, learning can be beautiful on its own. But I think there is an issue now, a fundamental issue in the education system where there isn't a clear connect and a clear path between the learning you do and how it's going to apply in the economy. It's going to move things forward. So I would love that to be the impact redocracy has as it's used in schools, both for the students and the people who are teaching them and the people who are at the forefront moving things at the edges. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would hope for. How would you see that happening? So for example, we can look at credentialing. 
do your studies, and then you get this piece of paper at the end, which is just a piece of paper. And then nobody knows what you actually studied. You barely know a few years later. You have no evidence of it unless you're really diligent and save your files. And then anyways, you get this degree and then you go out into the world and it doesn't align directly with any jobs. It's again, it's a vague status signaling mechanism, usually more reliant on your institution you went to rather than the actual degree you did, like specifically what you learned. So it's already like really weird and vague and abstract and disconnected. So with redocracy, one example would be, okay, first of all, what if credentials didn't rely on the brand, but the learning? So what if the learning you did was continually loading a transcript that was completely transparent, came with a QR code. And when somebody was interviewing you or anybody want to check on LinkedIn, the QR code and the link was right there. They hit it or they scan it and immediately pulls up all your learning automatically organized top contributions you made in discussions, everything filterable. They will know what to talk to you about and what to ask you to understand the value of this knowledge and what you actually got and how you feel about it within a minute. That starts to have a different value, very, a different value proposition versus this paper you get at the end. And something that can continue on and continue to grow through life. Not just this thing that ends, I'm like, oh, finally, I'm done with school. Like, just like, I'm out of here. And then people start preaching to you about continuing learning. There's no way to do it. Why is it not one thing? That is transparent, evidence-based, and can be checked. And at that point in time, you don't need to rely as much on the institutional brand value, but can move to the learning itself, especially, I mean, this is a whole other conversation around the unbundling of experts from institutions, but you, that learning, the value can be, oh, this expert told me to learn this. All these experts together on this subject have defined how I have filled my mind, not because of this logo and this crest mm. and I don't have anything on. So that's one aspect, but when this ties to industry, you can imagine a situation where this is a feature we've built into Redocracy and we're talking to a bunch of schools to deploy this now. They have their course, but then they say, we also want to have a micro-credential, nano-credential here that is designed by leading practitioners that is part of our course. So then they will go to MIT, Nike, IDEO, and they will send a simple link out. And the link says, can you pass it on to your top expert in design thinking? They just need to click the link and it's gonna ask them, if you could only recommend one article, one video, one paper on design thinking that you think is essential and you could just add your quick notes why, what is it? They submit it, they get a prompt that they're allowed to pass it on to their network. Next thing you know, you have this amazing list of materials coming together, it shows you the experts and their notes, why it mattered. And if the students work their way through, they now have proof that they right. got all this material. And so when they go into industry, they're basically pre-vetted. There is a clear path, not only to these companies, but all the companies that respect this and it's immediately applied. It's not some thing that was detached and existing in institutions. So this is just one example where you can create like a more direct pathway and also have much more transparency. That makes sense. And not only that, but everybody's mm -hmm. got a dang course. And I'm thinking this is a huge area of opportunity for content creators who actually know shit to get it in the place where it might actually impact a new crop of people because the learning by the time you get to the university and then you get out, it's stagnant. Because you're not using what's cutting edge and the technology and the information is changing so rapidly that the people out in the field are doing the work and the people facilitating the courses haven't ever done the work or haven't ever done the work recently. Yep. Now you've just got this stagnant learning that is virtually useless. Yes. And not only virtually useless, but also doesn't even give you this explicit path into the industry. Like at right. least no if they'd give you, there's only some schools that do this well, you know, we're, we're from Canada, there's Waterloo. I'm sure a lot of people in Silicon Valley know about Waterloo. Like they at least have a really good path in the industry, but most schools just don't have that. Mm -hmm. And so at the very least, the standardization of having these paths, even if the learning isn't it, but ideally you'd have both. The learning is from people who are in it now and you have the path. That, that would be ideal. And I also think it is interesting that this unbundling that's happening. I think you saw it with journalism. I think there is like a certain unbundling happening back mm -hmm. in as well. It's really interesting. It is. But the problem is that, and that's exactly what I hope to explore on this podcast is a lot of people that I have lined up to come on, some of them are academics, but a lot of their most interesting work is not through academic publishing or their educational courses. It's because they have a YouTube channel mm -hmm. or it's because they wrote this awesome book or because they started a sub stack and then left their most interesting work and the thing that actually is connecting with people is outside of the university. So this is something that I think Readocracy is positioned to do that no one else is really positioned to do. 
and that is around the maintenance of knowledge. So when I think about academia, I think about three pillars. I think about the creation of knowledge, the dissemination of knowledge, and the maintenance of knowledge. Where is all of our knowledge housed and who keeps track of it, who validates it, who we can talk about validation until we're blue in the face in terms of what people actually use versus what is affirmed by the elite. But mm -hmm. who is doing that now in this day and age? There's so much more information than the universities even process. Renocracy, I think, is uniquely poised to deal with maintenance aspects of knowledge because we look out there, if we take the whole health debacle that's happened in the past couple of years, we'll just say, with the wear PPE and don't wear PPE and all the information that was out there where people were so utterly confused and then lost faith in our scientific methods because we were still learning and testing and nobody understood how knowledge is created, maintained, mm. validated, mm. disseminated. That whole system was a mess in terms of the public's exposure to it. Like we got caught with our pants down. So what yeah. did bureaucracy do to help create a system of maintained knowledge and looking at how knowledge is structured and situated in the day of the internet. Yeah. I have two thoughts on that. One is I actually would argue that before the creation, dissemination, and maintenance, there's a step before that that should exist in our, from kindergarten, that is how to think about knowledge and the philosophy of knowledge. And then we can get into worrying about creation and Word. dissemination and maintenance. Like I think it's so important, but I think with the redocracy, the big part is trust. The, what we're lacking now, two things like trust and the incentive mechanism, because we end up not having trust as a result of the toxic incentive mechanism. And what I mean by that is when you described what we had with the pandemic and let's say the informational chaos, we're in a system that has incentivized the pollution of the information commons. And it's crazy. This is a lens that we've been trying to like help people think with as well which is you can look at the physical environment and how we have learned that we should not pollute it because it's finite, we rely on it. And so you can think of our information commons as sure, it's an infinite environment, but our attention is finite. And so in that same way, there is a finiteness to it. And if we are in a system that is compulsively paying people to compulsively pollute it and fill it like with as many posts a day with the most inflammatory, distracting shit. Like you get paid, the more false it is and the more insane it is, then we're never going to find a signal in the noise. That's always been a problem to begin with. That's the definition of communication and information, but we're in a system that's actively like adversarially working against us. Truly. And so I think the first part of, of redocracy is how do we incentivize people to behave better? And I think that is the big part of redocracy. What does it mean when you have a system that can scale that changes the dynamics of power. So on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere online, the standard we've understood for the past 15, 20 years of the social web is it's a volume game. There's a tweet that's going viral. It's because it has the most likes and the most reactions. And within that, the replies to the tweet that will uh, appear and first shares. are generally the ones with the most shares, the most Ugh. likes, just volume based. There's nothing really qualitative. And I guess you can imagine what if those replies or the tweets you were seeing not only took into account the quantity of attention that person was able to get, but also the quality of the attention they gave. Beforehand. And so the algorithm starts adjusting to say, okay, this person has the most likes, but they have an atrocious track record on the subject. They haven't informed themselves that the things they do share are only from misinformation sources or are really biased or only from one source they rank down. This person who has half the likes, but has a very broad set of sources they've been using all of them are trusted and they get positive reactions from other people who have a track record of being balanced and trusted. They're ranking up. And so the, the, this is just one example, but, or like discussions, which you can only join once you've done your homework properly, right? So many mechanisms we could use to say nothing of, again, this might help you get a job. If you invest mm -hmm. your time on quality information that you can use mm -hmm. to present to the world that you're somebody people want to work with. So. I think part is the incentive mechanism. Like when you say maintenance of knowledge, or I guess it ties into dissemination as well, but like of the information commons, yeah. like our, we're the gardeners of our collective mind. And then I think the trust component, I've had people point out to me that in some ways, redocracy is like a trust exchange yes. in the sense that, and this is going to be true when we get to the knowledge marketplace we want to release, but it's how can we change who gets to be trusted. And so if you're in a situation with quote unquote experts 
and you have to decide who's an expert and which one you're going to trust and who's going to decide the public discourse. This hopefully would help us streamline our decision-making as a society if we have better signals of who is going to be elevated so we can use that particular information. And I think we have an issue now where we lack trust because of the distraction, but also because it's not all totally clear which information we should use and who actually is a trusted expert amongst the sea of experts. Because of the volume-based metric, it's not actually quality that's promoted. If we're categorizing knowledge, like think about the way that scholars have looked at ideas and re-examined them over time. And let's say now the information commons is expanded outside of academia. And so we have to look at who our scholars and scribes are and who's going back through the knowledge and going, okay, this person actually knew what the fuck they were talking about. And this person was trash. So we let that idea fall down. It's really difficult to sift through all the information. So you're talking about readocracy qualifying a person's mm. uh, output by saying this was their input. And then you're also talking about the incentive mechanisms. A lot of tech companies, which you are a tech company, mm -hmm. Mr. CEO, mm -hmm. even though I feel like you're so much more of a scholar than you're like <laughs> this hybrid in my mind, because I know tech Thanks. CEOs mm -hmm. and they're- I like to think we're an ethical and humane tech company. Sure, whatever yeah. this yeah, is. Whatever makes you feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but the incentive structure for corporations and for business is bottom line profit. And mm -hmm. all of these, companies which house our information online are most interested in housing that information, not only storing it themselves and sifting through it how they want to and keeping it from everyone knowing from the commons, from the general base of knowledge, but they're also interested in monetizing it. So talking about trust, what about trust with readocracy? Because a lot of people I've shared this with their first instinct, I'm like, yeah, it's a Chrome plugin. You just put it on your browser. There's going to be an app and it'll track everything you read. And they're like, everything I read? I'm like, yeah, everything you read in your browser. And, and then what do they do yeah. with it? And I'm like, then they give it back to you. But yeah. there's this hesitancy because they're like, okay, I use DuckDuckGo now, which we've all seen mm. is not what we think mm. it is. Or I use Brave now. So mm. they have this, this lack of trust that a big tech company is going to do something useful for them with their mm. own knowledge. They're going to use it against me eventually is what they're thinking. Yeah. yeah which is what happens, right? Like you are uh, something to be mined and sold extracted yeah. from. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a few aspects of this that I find so interesting and problematic. First of all, just we're super transparent about how privacy first we are. We're proud of the fact that we won a Mozilla award for being like a pioneer in fixing the internet. Betaworks give us another fixed internet, you know, stamp of approval, only three companies they invested in that context. South by Southwest finalists for social impact. So we've hopefully gotten some recognition for names that matter in terms of the fact that we're walking the talk. Also, I think from a user experience perspective, we definitely need to work on our UI. I think it's good, but like you can tell we don't have a dedicated designer on staff. <laughs> but, well, that's because you're not I, exploiting your users. Yeah, you could very yeah. easily exploit your users and start selling your data and move oh, yeah, we could fast as shit. Yeah. loads of money. It's true. It's true. So that is a choice. It's true. It makes me feel a lot better. The UX side, it's designed to make you feel confident and comfortable with us. Because mm -hmm. Redocracy only works if somebody trusts us. Because mm -hmm. it's a big leap, as these people rightfully point out, to have something that tracks so much. And so when you onboard, there's a personal message from me waiting to reiterate what we stand for. When you go to install the extension, the page that has the installation of the extension has a whole blurb of if you feel uncomfortable before you go through, click here. We've got a whole thing being like, we understand mm -hmm. the internet is terrifying. Here's why we did it. Here's what we're thinking. The extension, you can always see when it's on. There's little buttons that appear on the bottom right of the page. They're subtle, but you can see them from the corner of your eye so that you never wonder if Redocracy is on or off, like a million other extensions out there. You have no idea when they're tracking or when they're on or off. Redocracy, mm -hmm. you can see it. And even then it hasn't saved anything yet. You'll know when it's actually switched from just available to actually saved. And then also the, like another thing we do is we send you every Sunday, a reminder of everything that was logged. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to wonder. You just go, so like nope, all... nope. I don't want that. I don't exactly. want my recipe oh, I didn't search. Notice that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, <laughs> how did I spell one... sarcophagus this week? Was... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nope. We don't need that. Yeah. And so that's how we've tried to give you total confidence. And then on top of that, we take it personally as users ourselves. So it doesn't trigger on adult content, which is a question we get so often, oh, I haven't especially checked. for males, but like, just does not trigger on adult content, does not trigger on banking, does not trigger on shopping. If we detect a sensitive word, even if it's in a trusted source or what would normally be a subject you're fine with and from a source you're in, we'll default it to private just in case. So if there's like oh. a curse word, 
we're gonna be like, okay, just in case we're switching this to private and you can manually switch it back to public if you want. Interesting. Yeah. So okay. like we've gone to great lengths to make this extremely privacy forward and an update we're about to add. If you want content to appear in your profile, it will not only need to be public, but you will also have to applaud the content. So like, again, we've gone to great lengths. What I wanted to say separate from that more like system level, it's such a tragedy and it makes me so angry that Facebook and all the big tech players, they've not only destroyed the internet in my mind and what we thought conditioned us to think we can only run a certain way, which is toxic, but they have also conditioned the average consumer to not give the benefit of the doubt to people who are trying to make a change. True. So what you just described is something we obviously encounter a lot. We have to work 10 times as hard as companies did 10 years ago to earn somebody's trust. They are, as a side effect, stunting the growth of ethical and human technology because companies coming out there doing amazing things have such an uphill battle convincing people that they're not just another sleazy company. And it is an invisible cost yeah. that people are not aware of, which is really significant. If you wonder why great solutions are not commercialized, that are not, because the startup's hard enough. Going against the grain is hard enough. Add to that the expectation that everyone you're trying to help is coming to you and saying, really work five times as hard to prove to me why you're not going to screw me. And so it's definitely like a really shitty aspect of the whole thing. I see that, but let me challenge you to reframe this. Let me challenge you because the way I see it is they did you a favor. First of all, they set you up like you would not have sure. a business if it wasn't yeah. for these assholes. And second yeah. of all, they primed your customers to be skeptical. Mm. So while some people go the like weird skepticism route of I'm only going to follow things that feel right for me, mm. check my crystals on this one. Well, that's a side effect too. Perhaps this is changing the way that we do everything on the internet in a good way if we are able to harness their skepticism and say, this is a good thing. I want to applaud mm. you for your skepticism. You should mm. be skeptical of anybody yeah. trying to sell you something or anybody, in fact, trying to get your attention. So yeah. they taught your users the very first lesson that your yeah. attention is valuable. Yeah, which is a great point, And I like that reframing. The challenges of crossing the trust chasm that exists at that initial step, because yeah. there's, it's great framing and I, in a lot, in some bizarre way, we're on the same team in terms of, we want people to be critical thinkers too. Right. And this is like forcing people as a defense mechanism to be more critical. Great. You have people who are like, oh, no way I'm adding any extensions. I don't care what you tell me. I have a blanket ban on adding anything else. Yeah. And the funny thing is, well, people are so ill-informed about it because they'll say that. And at the same time, they'll be Facebook users. Do you have an Instagram account? Oh, interesting. But you're like really sensitive about your data and what you mm -hmm. add to your browser. Like, what are we even talking about here? Yeah. I think yeah. this is really interesting. It's n really narrowing your number one fans down of people who are really going to be into what you do. They're going to be serious mm -hmm. about privacy. They're going to be highly critical and they're not going to just give their data away or their information, which is a great base for you. It's just it probably not only finding those people, but then also working with them to make sure that they feel like every step of the way we're climbing this mountain with readocracy. Moving forward, one of the things around education and information and all this stuff is going to be really community-centric. Mm -hmm. And I think coalitions like that are going to be huge moving forward because everybody's got a platform and everybody's a solopreneur or famous for this or whatever, but it's like, where do they clump up and cluster to push mm -hmm. progress forward against the monolith that exists in yes. many ways? Totally. And I'm one of the things I'm most excited about for end of summer is to release our discussion groups. So that's where Redocracy goes from single player mode to multiplayer and community of communities. And I think it's gonna be really exciting to see, to your point, people who are like more critical, more thoughtful, wanna have a discussion that's better organized, but more than anything wanna get it for substance. So they'll say, I'm setting up this discussion on Redocracy. It's very easy to join. We're actually setting up mechanisms where you'll be able to have guest users. So it's gonna be very easy to get into Redocracy for these discussions, but, 
you need to read these three articles before you're allowed to join. You can lurk, but you have to hit this point until you're allowed to actually comment. Oh, we're um, going to set one up right here. Maybe the discussion could be what's your biggest concern about readocracy? Maybe that. Yeah, I would love it. that. I would love yeah. that. And, and or like book clubs, like there's a million ways you can use it. And I am excited for how we can use it ourselves, like drop criticism, drop brainstorming, like all these things. But again, in a way where it's a perfect example, right? Because you can go on Discord and have a billion communities and Discord can be so noisy and you have no idea who you should trust. It is. And so imagine if I'm going to solicit criticisms or ideas from a community, I really want to know where I should focus my energy on which people yeah. versus Twitter or Discord where I might end up taking the advice of somebody who's just really good at being inflammatory. Yeah, Discord, like I'm in, I don't know, a million Discords. I have a Discord and it's just for fun. It's for what I think of as more behind the scene bantery type stuff, informal discussion. We throw memes in there, we throw videos, we throw jokes, but the substantive discussion gets lost in there. And you can try to put it in a thread. We did the Future of Life Institute world building contest. And I'm like, this is the thread for Future of Life Institute. And then everybody throws memes in there and it's just, it's, it's fun, but you're right there. It's hard to extract the substantive discussion and then bring it back to someone and be like, look at this discussion we had. This is a really good discussion. And these people had really good points. There's no way to do that with Discord at this point. Yeah. Not to mention the, the lack of coherence of the conversations. Like you're like having all these, sure you can set up channels and whatnot, but like the incoherence of threads within it's fine to use WhatsApp or Signal or Telegram or Discord for discussions that are more fluid and don't necessarily not have as much content or they're just with your family or friends or what have you. But if you're in a conversation, which is topic oriented and has a lot of content flying around, it's like Slack came around and we realized how ridiculous email was for certain use cases. Right. I think the similar thing is happening with chat where there is a missing function for people who are sharing a lot of content are focused on a subject are like interweaving things to make it more coherent. And that's something else we're like, we hope to address. Yeah, because there's a lot of teachable moments and there are a lot of framing of good discussion. I think same thing with podcasts. I was just mm. on a podcast yesterday with just two really lovely human beings who have very different beliefs and it was about them and how they disagree and they model disagreement beautifully, which I never mm. see. So I think there's a lot of examples of really good things happening out there. But because of the bias of the system, because people were afraid to do anything in public, they retreat to these coffers like Discord, and then it's lost. All the beautiful things that are happening are lost and gatekept. Mm. So yeah. nobody really sees. They're like, oh, you're on Discord. What do you do? Just screw around. I'm like, no, we have like really amazing conversations in our weekly book club. And yeah, there's jokes, but you're right. It's all being lost in the signal to noise ratio. Yeah, totally. And again, just the signal to noise ratio and tools that either explicitly or implicitly are built for noise. Yes, they are. Right? Like whether built. it's the incentive mechanism or they're just poorly designed because that's right. not what they're made for. And we cobble them together and use them in these ways that are not particularly helpful. With this kind of stuff, there's probably a lot of ways to incentivize interesting conversations. Those will become clear for Redocracy in the future, I'm pretty sure. But I think if you incentivize your users to come on and have these discussions and demonstrate Th their knowledge and demonstrate what they're doing, you could really have something informative and a, a beautiful model where you can showcase, look at this expert and how all the people who enjoy their content have had this discussion. People have learned something from it and grown. And then I feel like pedagogically, you can extract things from that to show how we should even discuss things in this day and age. There's so much that could be done. Uh, the initial step there is going to be the credentials. So the credentials now in Redocracies, you can make like a collection. It's like a reading list basically, but you can have videos in there. You can have other stuff. It's not just articles, books, and you can set a credential on that to say, okay, we've assessed that there's 750 credits on these subjects in this content. I, as admin, I'm going to activate badges and certificates. And if you hit 40% of what's in here, you'll start getting the, let's say the bronze badge and you can work out uh, your way up to gold. But with these discussions, what it will then be is you can start mixing in requirements in the discussions to say, you get bronze for reading this much. And that's when you also unlock the discussion until then you're gated from the discussion. Then you can work your way up to get the full certificate by not only consuming, but also having at least 10 of your contributions to the discussion appreciated by the trusted people in the discussion. I see. At that point in time, you'll get it. So it's not just consumption, but also how do you apply what you're learning? And I think that'll be interesting if you can imagine a podcast or a book club or 
a session at a conference, being able to play with this to create these relationships, but then also have the output of the discussion, the output of the learning be something that is tangible. And again, you could have like other things. It doesn't have to be a certificate. You could theoretically put like prizes behind this, win a free book from so-and-so or whatever it may be. Yeah. I think it does get very interesting at that point where again, you are incentivized in different ways and there are outcomes to these wonderful discussions, which does run on the tracks that society uses to signal things, but mm -hmm. it's disappearing into the ether because it doesn't speak the same language. That goes back to the old uh, beat the system from within. <clears throat> I believe in that. I believe in that wholeheartedly. I remember I was actually on a plane and I happened to sit next to the CEO of the airline. And yeah. I know, weird. I was on a lot of planes. Like I'm like ha almost halfway to Million Mile Club on Alaska. Don't oh, come wow. after me, like climate people. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I was lamenting where I was in life. It got real deep real fast. And I actually like talked with his daughter and helped coach mm -hmm. her. But wow. I was like, I just hate the system I'm in. And he turns out he like started out back in the day as someone who worked out on the tarmac. And then he became like the CEO of the airline. And it was just like the real American dream type story. And he was like, yeah. you just sometimes have to work it from within. And so I think we're in this age where we just want to dismantle everything and tear it down and build new. And it's like, no, sometimes you have to build the new building next door so that people can start to populate it. And then you can fix up the old building or do something different with it. Totally. And not to mention there's so much valuable knowledge. <laughs> Do you think that everything we're accomplishing now and our ability to have these conversations is just sprung up out of nowhere? No, it's built <laughs> we're like on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. And I think it's almost sacrilegious in the context of like knowledge and knowledge making to throw everything out and say it's all rotten. Like, of course there's value here. And in the same way that when you're trying to build a solution, you should be looking at the landscape of skeletons might exist in your rel mm -hmm. relevant area to learn as much as possible and shorten your time to success. I think there's a lot we could learn and implement and adapt rather than throwing away. I think there's been a hollowing out of the corporate world and institutions through the guise of all things modern and the latest processes and this and that. Where classical knowledge and expertise is thrown out and the end result is like a shittier product and everybody unhappy, yes. both the people working there and the customers. It's like an excavation through automation is the way I'm thinking about it. It's like people are like, I know I'm a poet. What can I say? Um, <laughs> my husband and I were talking about this because he has a staffing company yeah. and he talks about how people hire and how the whole process is just broken because everybody thinks you can automate this or automate that, especially when it comes to bringing new people into your company. You cannot automate that, especially like having a small company that as you grow the people, the who is almost as important as the why, because yes. the why can change very quickly. And so I think you're right that all of these corporations that are trying to implement all kinds of autonomous processes and just things that seem a little bit premature, like trying to use machine learning for things that are just goofy, but they're using these buzzwords and hot topics, things like that to try and grow exponentially before they actually even have anything close to product market fit or understanding their customer base. The whole system in terms of startup culture really needs an overhaul as well. That's yes. a whole separate podcast. So but. at the intersection of what you just said, like the every startup toxicity, silly ways of applying things. I think everything around web three is basically people getting super excited by an idea and being married to idea, mm -hmm. not willing to look at the flaws of the tools that they claim to get them to the vision they have, clinging to the tools that are supposed to get them there instead of realizing that these are wonderful ideas. Let's work towards ideas, but be agnostic about what we're using, mm -hmm. especially given how toxic I think a lot of the tools to get there have proven to be. But regarding DAOs, it's interesting because ultimately the use case is still only in a financial context, like a bunch of people investing together and deciding how they're going to invest together. But the idea of DAOs is supposed to decentralize autonomous organizations. Like we're going to have corporations or we're going to have communities which are basically self-governing. And DAOs have flamed out so far consistently because you end up in a situation where it has the exact same incentive mechanisms as the toxic internet. Yeah. So the internet, right? Like you, I'm going to buy my way to influence or I'm going to win through sheer volume. And then what do you have with DAOs? You have, I'm going to earn tokens in the same way. I'm going to buy my way to power. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a lot of activity that gets me that token. I'm going to have power. So same shit. With Redocracy, the idea would be if you have a knowledge-driven organization or a knowledge-driven community, can you use Redocracy to instead assign or balance power by their intellectual commitment and influence? 
And at that point in time, you better hope those are the right people to be running your organization and climbing. That's one side where I think that's a more plausible application where you could have DAOs that scale with integrity and it can finally work. Yeah. So that's, but then the other side I think is so funny because just like with so many things, Web3 and crypto, I'm often left wondering, have you never worked in a normal company or know how the world works? Or are you just being willfully misleading? Because I think about DAOs and corporations and I'm like, have you ever had a serious conversation with an HR person? <laughs> it's laughable almost. I'm really disappointed in the way DAOs have gone because in theory, what they want is beautiful. I love yes, the concept. For sure. Yes. Love the concept. But That's the implementation the is hugely flawed. And I think yeah. part of what I've seen from my experience in working with DAOs is not only what you're talking about, but also I don't feel like there's a way of knowing who should do what anyways. It's kind of like, okay, everybody can come in. And then you've got this mess. I work for a particular DAO where I asked them the same question I said to you. I'm like, y'all have a TikTok because you're missing out on a huge opportunity with what you're doing. Like it's so TikTokable, it's not even funny. And they were like, yeah, I don't know. And I'm like, I know, like I make TikToks and I have had huge success on this platform. And they're like, okay, maybe we'll think about it. And then they ended up making one, which is great. But the way that they filtered in people's expertise just was so hodgepodge. I was like, I came in mm. as a writer and they paid me to do certain things. Like, and I'm like, y'all are just going based on trust. And it's supposed to be trustless. Mm. There's actually quite a bit of trust that people are going to do the right thing within your company. And there's no way to vet people. There's no way to really understand who's doing what. The tools are extremely complicated. Then try navigating clarity. Have you ever tried what the heck, like Kanban nightmare is clarity. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole mess, but I, again, if we look at it through opportunity, I'm really super excited to see how you complement academia because academia is pretty much a business. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who's claiming that academic integrity and freedom of, of academic inquiry is uncontaminated is full of shit. It was such an eye-opening experience to me because when we were initially starting out, just the idea of it, we're like, oh, academics would be such a good target. And they are in some cases, like people like you, but there's an equal, I think, number, if not more people who are like doing their PhD, who the system makes them fiercely protective of their mm -hmm. research and what they're learning. And God forbid they would share that with the world, uh, maybe until after they're published, maybe. I think the business of it can be helpful in terms of opening that up. So thinking about how you would open that up, I have some ideas myself, but just for the record, I am no longer an academic. I could go teach somewhere. They keep asking me- I didn't to mean to offend you. No, I'm not offended. <laughs> it's the academics who like look down on me because I like left and I'm not part of the pedigree yeah. anymore, but I'm not offended because like it's a hot mess in there. And I actually mm. feel like I left academia and get to be more of an academic than I ever was. Mm. But when I was doing my PhD, the competitive landscape was incredible. And I wrote a little article about it when I was a grad student about competition versus collaboration. And why don't we have more collaboration? There's all these labs working on the same thing. Why don't we all pool our resources and learn yes. the same techniques? And, yes. and the problem is that people get stuck not getting credit. So let's say I'm a grad student and you're like, hey, grad student, you should use Readocracy to document all the articles you read and bucket them here and there. And then you can demonstrate to your committee, look, look at all the expertise that I've gained from all these articles. And they're like, okay. And you're like, but make it public. And they're like, oh no, because then maybe somebody will connect the dots on how I came up with this idea and then do it before me. And that's the thing is we're incentivizing secrecy. We're incentivizing competition over collaboration. And the grant funding structure is such that only 4% of people in certain NIH categories will get funded. So maybe you can speak a little bit to how like a little PhD candidate content creator kind of person could potentially set themselves up for a career and monetize what they're doing through Readocracy? Yes. The leap you make initially of feeling like you're putting yourself out there and essentially selling your stuff for free initially. But the fact of the matter is, look, if you dream about being in academia your whole life and you have this obsession with the institution and the traditional way of looking at it, like you do you. If you have any openness and aspirations to working in the broader market and becoming a figure that is respected and has as a name beyond your institution and beyond like academic networks, redocracy can help you 
make it tangible. So you spend so much time, especially if you're a researcher, you're doing your PhD, the sheer volume of stuff you consume on a specific subject is outrageous. And the fact that at the end is just like a paper maybe <laughs> is such a poor representation of that work. And so if you could use Redocracy, you're spending that time anyways. And so without really lifting a finger most of the time, you'll be able to have this thing at this place that has a page that has it all mined and quantified and presentable and sortable. And then all the ways you can then use that to present yourself. So you can imagine you're doing this work, but then you have this amazing page. People can subscribe to it. You could monetize it. You could say, I'm spending more time than anybody. I'm basically doing work for you people who want to know about the subject. So why not pay me to get access to my annotations and my notes? You could see what I'm reading for free but you want the notes and, and like that, like everything I'm highlighting and my thoughts, that's the part where it comes a paid subscription. It's almost like a newsletter, but it's a stream of mind and see the world through this research I'm doing for you. So now you have a revenue stream. Then beyond that, we're gonna equip you. So you take this and put it on LinkedIn. Suddenly your LinkedIn is looking better than other people. You have like your featured section, you have a custom header. We will generate a roundup for you every week. Doing a newsletter is hard, it takes time. It's hard to be consistent and find interesting things, but you're already consuming amazing things. So we'll take, all the stuff you consumed every week and every Friday, we'll send you a link. That's a single roundup. It's ready to post on LinkedIn, ready to paste in your newsletter. I know we talked about this. So this is almost ready. I love that. And the thing I love about it most is you don't have to be getting a PhD to do that. This is, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think this is a group you would like as well, an organization you would like. They're called the Knowledge Society. And they're, they're one of the organizations which have started using bureaucracy. And their whole theory is we're going to find the smartest teenagers in the world and equip them to be change makers as quick as possible. So they can start changing the world now. Yikes. Not waiting to, so these are like 13, 14 year olds that are doing like gene editing and all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh God, I'm scared now. <laughs> <laughs> they're so smart. They're so smart. They're some of bureaucracy's biggest power users. These kids are just wild. I think this is great too, for a lot of people who are considered multi-hyphenates. If you look at my profile, I don't know how many types there are in your stats, but I'm a ranger. Mm. And yes. what are the types that you can be? Ranger, original, and they're based okay. on the books, originals, range, and- oh, Originals by Adam Grant? Yep. Okay. Range, outliers. And outliers. outliers. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you're a ranger, which I think is great. I've always known I, that though. I'm, I've read I'm all a three ranger. books. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I think I categorize him as a ranger too. And yeah, for multi-hyphenate, it's such a good point. One of the main issues I think you'll find with millennials and Gen Z is they have so much information at their fingertips. They're not doing what their parents or their grandparents did of spending their lives in one company or the same career for four years and then retire and play golf. Like their job hopping, their interests are changing. So telling them that you are your degree you are your job title is crazy. And so this they is also it. an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they're quitting. To, That's why I quit. Yes, exactly. You need yeah. to be respected in that way. It's very interesting talking to companies who don't get it versus mm. the ones that do. And mm -hmm. the ones that do are like understanding the generational pulse. Yeah. yeah. So, no, that's why we need to restructure everything we're doing and mm -hmm. be just completely overhauling our mindset about it because these companies are going to be dinosaurs and you're right. They're like excavating everything we have within us and exploiting us until we have nothing left and then we'll become virtually useless. So yeah. I think this whole push around valuing more than just productivity is going to be big in the future. The funny thing is that those of us that are climbing the uphill battle against whatever monolith we're up against, productivity is, we still hustle gang. Like, you can't even lie. You still are in the hustle gang. And then you're watching totally. all these motherfuckers out here who are doing yoga at three in the afternoon. And you're like, God damn you. I do yoga. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, it's great. But, but I to mean, being a living off of it and have the liberty. No, that, I, I bust my know. ass too. I'm up at yeah, 10 o'clock yeah. at night, white labeling IP addresses. So it's up at 4 a.m. from what I've noticed or super early. Whenever the brain is activated, but yeah. it's got to change yeah. because it's not only is it unsustainable, but it's just fucked up that there's people that are working so hard and mm. there are people doing nothing and everybody's screwed mostly. Mm. It doesn't mm. matter. The system is so rigged that we have to mm. work hard to fix it. I agree. And that comes back to the incentive mechanism. Like why are people able to do this? Cause they're able to monetize nothings usually most of the time and able to game the system. People worry about, okay, if you have UBIs, everybody's just going to sit on their ass and society's going to fall apart. It's, I actually think we're already in a situation where the reality of the matter is that people who like myself and like pretty much every other founder early stage, 
seem like masochists because they're not getting a financial return for mm -hmm. a while on what they're so deeply passionate about. And I'm pretty sure that in that system where you could sit on your ass, these same people are not. They're going to yeah. work just as hard yeah. regardless. I would argue that for every person that you worry is just going to sit and just be a couch potato, and there are going to be some, it might actually create like a renaissance where people who can never take the risk suddenly being able to do so. It's interesting because the system needs to be fixed as it is. And I actually would be optimistic about a new system, which gives everybody some security. Everybody's getting some benefit and people, everybody has the liberty to hustle as much as they want. That's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. And the creator economy is what's supposed to get us there. Places like Substack and the money you get from TikTok and all these like creator web three strategies are just a life raft in, mm. and we're drowning in the ocean and we yes. need to find shore, which is to say these institutions are falling apart. And so let's say the New York times fires all their journalists and hires GPT three or GPT seven mm -hmm. or whatever it's going yeah, to be to yeah, write every yeah. article, yeah. any, every possible permutation. What then is Barry Weiss going to have? that other people don't have. And the only thing she has is her experience, her mm. opinion. And you could even write it in as if Barry Weiss could write it. Oh, like, you could do that today. You don't right. need GPT-7, you do it now. Yeah. But they, the one thing they don't have is the entirety of that person. And right. so I think right. that is what we're going to have to start moving towards, more holistic value system. It's just yeah. going to have to happen. It is such a great way of putting it. Like we're just buying time almost as the whole thing is sinking. We're trying to find new ways at the edges to stay afloat just a little bit longer as we get worked out of the current system. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that even the creator economy is like, I have this draft that's been sitting in my folder, but the creator economy's Groundhog Day, because it's all cyclical. Like at a certain point you go in, you set up your newsletter, you become wildly successful. And then you realize that you can't do it on your own. And he's got to set up a company. And suddenly next thing there's a hierarchy. And next thing you're like, fuck it. I'm exiting and I'm back at the same publisher I left. <laughs> and so, yeah, it creates some rebalancing where now like individuals have more power at publishing houses. And I, I do think what's happening in journalism will end up having echoes that you see similar things happen in academia and, and like with knowledge workers in general. But in the end, we're seeing that the creator economy doesn't necessarily work for everybody. There's a few winners at the top. The financially, it doesn't work out at scale. People end up realizing that they end up becoming the beast and it's all very cyclical. And then again, to, to your point, it's we're just like running faster, just buying time <laughs> as this thing is like this monster is like drowning uh, with us, like attached to it as like an appendage. Yeah. I have optimism. And someone told me that optimism is a category one error recently on Twitter. It's like, <laughs> you're fun at parties. <laughs> but oh, man. there's, that's why I'm kind of, I lean against the very erudite and the very stodgy mm. facade of academia because we have to start going for more. We have to start being more holistic about the way that we live, the way that we approach questions. I'm not even going to talk about string theory on this podcast, but it's like, we've, we, we at the edge. Let's talk about how readocracy is going to deal with, I would call it the misinformation crisis, because not mm. only is the amount of misinformation or disinformation prevalent, but also now we're having problems with labeling information. Like how do we label information for people? How do, who's to say that this is right or wrong or left or right, or how do you deal with that? So first of all, you shouldn't get credit for bullshit, like inflammatory madness. So there's a handful of databases out there that are exclusively focused on mapping polarization and factuality, and they have a set transparent methodology, pretty rigorous. You can challenge it. You can look for yourself, explain why. So they're pretty solid. Like they're not perfect, but they're pretty solid. And I actually think they're good because a lot of the articles you find online are from the most extreme misinformation sources, writing articles and raging against these databases and be like, how dare you label us as misinformation and look at the rest of their content. They're like, there's the most toxic, vile, misinformed shit ever. So we're the only platform that uses like pretty much all the available databases and plugs in as much as possible, we're always on the lookout for new signals we can use. And so we incorporate those all. And so when you're on Redocracy and you land on a source that is no misinformation, you get a warning. And the way Redocracy works is you, the only thing that decides, we're not an arbiter of truth. We rely on these databases. It's transparent. If you disagree, you can click and go see their methodology. You can complain mm -hmm. to them and they'll like, look, they review it. So very transparent. Redocracy decides how many subject matter credits something is worth just based on the sheer volume of information. Like whether that's textual or the equivalent in words from a video or a graph or what have you. The only thing that affects that as a negative multiplier is extreme polarization or outright misinformation. So if you are a known source of extreme views- Like Alex Jones, for example. Misinformation. Yeah. That just 
What has been revealed through the accidental leak by his lawyers is extremely important information. People need to know that it is possible for you to make $800,000 a day. <laughs> I did a TikTok by on that. Being, like, yeah, like that is really, that's actually a great point. Why I need to do that. Maybe I'll reply to yours. I'll do at yours. But it's people need to know how potent the incentive mechanism is. Because once you see that and understand it's real, then you understand why the world's so fucked. Yeah. Somebody can have a hundred thirty to two hundred seventy million dollar worth by tearing society apart. That's how lucrative mm -hmm. it is. Why wouldn't the whole world go and do that for a living? So if something is known as misinformation, it is worth zero credits. You can add it to your own profile. We're not going to censor you, right. but you can't proliferate it through the community. If something is an extreme source of polarization, it's worth fewer credits. So as a negative multiplier, it's still worth something, but it's worth less. Interesting. And then, yeah. So that's the only thing and everything's labeled. It's all transparent. And I think it's really important. There's a huge distinction between free speech and free reach. So it's really important to distinguish, look, even compare it to China and their system, you don't know how things are ranked. You don't have any explanation. You don't know when you're being tracked. You don't know how it's being used and you can't complain about it. Yeah. Or you get nothing. You, do... you get no information and no yeah. recourse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Here you're being like, okay, this is the platform that we want to create. We think that this should not be promoted. And so we're not going to promote it. The rules are transparent. You being able to see how they're made is transparent. You being able to complain is transparent and repercussion free. There's no limit to what you can add to your own profile and what mm -hmm. you can do. It's just, it's simple. You've joined a community. These are the rules. Do you bother to inform yourself? Are you not trying to be inflammatory? Are you not like a shithead rabble rouser? Right. Right. Sometimes I like to be, yeah, look, I am a meme Lord. Yeah. But, uh, but it, it, the difference is transparency. If you have a system, which is fully transparent, fully accountable, mm -hmm. totally different conversation. And I think most of the people who have it are quick to make that misleading leap to say, oh, this is like the next thing, you know, this is a totalitarian society you're helping run. Right. I'm sure that redocracy will have, this will change as you guys grow, because as we know, things that could be misinformation one day. There could be evidence. That's how science works. But so I'm sure you guys are going to move and change along that. But I appreciate that you have to take a stance somewhere. It might be a challenge for you as well, because mm -hmm. there are a lot of really smart people, Eric Weinstein, who <laughs> they have these ideas that are very outside the box. And mm -hmm. if, I would love to see his profile. And that's the thing that drew me to Readocracy in the first place. I like how you just, there was just like a supersonic yeah. <laughs> light game in your uh, yeah, but that's what drew me to Readocracy in the first place. Because I remember thinking when I was trying to explain my grant to someone, I said, what if you could have Einstein's playlist? Yes. And then I saw on your on your website that you guys said, what if you could read what Einstein read or something like that? But mm -hmm. I think we want to, we want to see what people are thinking, even if it's outlandish. Yeah, totally. Look, like, I don't think anybody should be punished for anything. The idea is to equip people to be critical thinkers and decide for themselves. We had such a fascinating conversation. I won't say with who, but it was somewhere in the American government and high up enough where their pushback was like, we'd love to implement this, but we can already tell if this ever gets up and Congress is like looking at our funding and whatnot, they're going to be like, look at these people deciding what's true. It made me realize people who are quick to say that labeling misinformation is a form of censorship mm -hmm. and all that bullshit. They will be quick to say that, oh, you're infringing on people's freedoms. I believe that it's the opposite. So if you are not equipping people to have context, you are giving people free reign to manipulate them. And you think you're living free, but you are living in a hollow moving mirrors that you don't even realize that you're mm -hmm. a puppet. That's the opposite of freedom. The ultimate freedom is being equipped to see those mirrors and see everything around you, and then you are free. And so mm -hmm. I think there, this is important counter narratives. Nobody's infringing on a freedom when they label things in new context. If you decide whether you're going to believe it or not. You are getting equipped to think for yourself, even if it's wrong, if it labels wrong, you're even in that case, the earlier discussion of Facebook equipping people to be critical, you're at least being taught to be critical to say, I disagree with this. And so I think that's a really important distinction. I will also add how we make money. That, yeah, that everybody wants to know. <laughs> we will never sell people's data or transact in it. We will never allow ourselves to be acquired by anything that would use the data in that way. We're actually looking at becoming a B Corp, so that's in our corporate documents. So that's off the table.
as I said earlier, I think there's simply more money anyways to be had by looking, mapping our attention to information onto the knowledge economy and the reputation mm -hmm. economy. So I don't think there's any need to sell out and sell people out in this way. I think it's the most inefficient and stupid way of making money. And it's going to be um, worthless eventually because it's there's going to be a million. Worthless. Yeah, there's a million companies that'll do it anyways. Yes. And what, you think it's a coincidence that Facebook's first revenue decline? Sure, they don't know how to innovate, but there's also a fundamental problem of how their core revenue mechanism is being affected and Google being threatened too. So you're seeing it already. Yeah. So we just, we run a freemium model. If you are an individual, you get the basics for free, but then if you want the, the dynamic knowledge graphic can generate for you to study yourself, if you want the advanced insights on polarization, if you want all these things, you got to pay the time. And in the process for once, you're not giving your money to some shitty organization, by the way. And then also similarly, like you can use it for free and have your profile, but if you want the LinkedIn upgrades, if you want the email signature upgrades, resume upgrades, newsletter upgrades, all these things, that's the paid account. Okay. Corporations and schools would pay per user. Okay. So simple. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure there's lots to come on that. So I'm excited to see what other offerings you guys cook up. Readocracy is actually a sponsor of Neo Academia, the very first sponsor. So what we're going to do for this entire season is we're going to create a collection that has some of the topics we've talked about and some resources on it. And we're going to refer people to that, which will be in my discord. If you're looking for the collection, each guest that comes on to talk about these topics, they'll start their own collection on Neo Academia where yes. you can get all the resources and things that they're thinking about. So see into these people's minds yeah. in a non-creepy way. A yeah. Way. In a non-creepy way. And then, yeah. yeah. So go check out Mario's collection on Neo Academia. It's going to be so fun. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And also anybody who wants to check out Redocracy, we're still currently on a wait list. So I'm going to be off of one, but, uh, but if you mention the podcast, we'll make sure to fast track you. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I promise you that uh, half my followers will come and be testing your troll function in the discussion group. So Excited for that. That is going to be a good test. They're going to, the different meme lords are going to show up. I, I like it. I like it. I like the challenge. They, the levels of irony within my following is unfathomable. Thank you so much. Excited to be the first guest. Super excited for where this is going to go because I know it's going to be amazing. And thank you for being a supporter of Redocracy and excited to see all the other great conversations that are going to be here. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks for joining us here on Neo Academia. For next episode, we'll continue to explore the shifting walls of the ivory tower. You can see the full video of this episode on YouTube and sign up to receive episodes, show notes, Redocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theoryyang.io.